You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 11th of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. It's 1600 in Tokyo, 9am in Cairo, 7am here in London and 3am in Georgetown. You're listening to Monocle Radio. The Globalist starts now. Hello, this is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead, we examine the fallout over the UN vote for a ceasefire in Gaza as bombardment of the Strip continued over the weekend. We'll hear about the ongoing elections in Egypt. Voting hasn't finished, but there's little doubt as to who's won. We'll be in Tokyo to unpick the government financial scandal and then... We are taking this threat very seriously. Venezuela is displaying, I think at this stage, the zenith of a pattern of aggressive behaviour towards Diana. We'll hear about Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro's attempts to annex neighbouring Essequibo. We'll have a flick through the international papers, have a roundup of art news and then... The atmosphere is building a little. The rain is doing its best, but it's not doing well enough to beat the Christmas spirit. We'll recap the highlights of the Monocle Christmas market in London. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. In Argentina, the libertarian economist Javier Millet took office yesterday, warning that he had no alternative to a sharp, painful fiscal shock to fix the country's worst economic crisis in decades, with inflation heading towards 200%. An African regional body helping to mediate the war in Sudan says it has secured a commitment from warring parties to implement a ceasefire and to hold a political dialogue aimed at resolving the conflict. And former European Council President Donald Tusk is expected to be appointed Prime Minister of Poland today during a parliament sitting set to captivate the nation. Now, on Friday, the United States vetoed a United Nations resolution backed by 13 of the 15 council members demanding an immediate ceasefire in Gaza, where Palestinian civilians are facing what the UN chief calls a humanitarian nightmare. Meanwhile, Israel continued to bombard the city of Khan Yunus in Gaza. Well, I'm joined now by Yossi Meckelberg, who's a lecturer in international relations at the University of Roehampton. Yossi, many thanks for for coming on the show. We know that the IDF continued its push into Khan Yunus over the weekend. What is the latest on the ground? Uh, Good morning. Well, I think uh, Israel and, you know, the IDF know that the time is, is is coming quite quickly until a ceasefire will basically will be uh, imposed. So whatever they said as military objectives, they are trying to to press ahead. And uh, because from the beginning, the, the the objective of eliminating Hamas was it look it looks clear, but it's very vague. What does it mean in terms of military, political, ideologically? So. 
and we saw what happened, as you mentioned, just in the Security Council. On the one hand, the United States says that the, the death toll is unacceptable. And, and at certain point, a ceasefire must be called, but it's still vetoed it. So the, the, the message to Israel, we might allow you a few more days, maybe a week or two, but then a ceasefire will be called. So as a result of it, Israel is trying, whether they're trying to get to the leaders of Hamas, people like Yahya Sinwar or Muhammad Def or, or others, and reduce as much as military capabilities, but then the question what happens next. So can we just unpick that UN vote on Friday? I mean, it came about because the Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, uh, invoked uh, Article 99 of the UN Charter for the first time. I wonder what's in that charter and how significant it was that he actually went ahead and invoked it. Well, I think uh, actually uh, I, I'm, I'm here in the Doha Forum in, in Qatar and uh, Mr. Guterres is here and his speech yesterday here in front of, of all the audience was very clear and also clashes with the United States. He thinks that this is according to Israel and in accordance with, with, the, with the UN Charter, it's, it's imperative that the United, that the United Nations would call to a ceasefire. But because of the veto power, the way that the security guns was, was designed with five permanent members have the veto, right? We saw it in, in other cases, like in the case of, of Syria or, or Ukraine. It's enough for one of the permanent members to veto it, and it doesn't happen. Even if the, the, the other 14 support it, in the case the UK abstained as well, and if the General Assembly supports it. So it basically the United uh, Nations blocks now something that because of the high level of death toll among, among civilians, because of the devastation, they think that it's time to, to call for a ceasefire. It's not, and you know, Israel tried to portray that, that this is a kind of a sign of sympathy with Hamas, but this is ridiculous. It's not about Hamas anymore in this sense. It's about a humanitarian disaster. The UN just, uh, the UNRWA just uh, said to the release a uh, press, you know, really, that says that there is a real danger of spread of disease in 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 Gaza, and also the possibility that many Palestinians will try to press to leave Gaza altogether uh, towards Egypt. So, I mean, how did the U.S. justify voting against it then? Well, it's it's full of of, of contradiction. It's it's a real paradoxical here. On the one hand, it's Secretary of State Anthony Blinken himself says that the death toll among civilians is unbearable, the devastation in Gaza is unbearable. You know, there is shortage of food, water, access, you know, sanitation and, 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 and medicine. So people don't get, you know, on the one hand, there are so many injuries and death. There is no medical treatment, adequate one. So they said this is unacceptable. And what I just heard five minutes ago, Secretary State Blinken just said that that, you know, they're in discussion of Israel about how to reduce this kind of suffering among Palestinians, but at the same time, they don't veto it. So they create the kind of space for Israel to continue with, with, with this. And I think it's, it's basically a question that the United States needs to answer how they can square the circle between what they say and how they act. I mean, a huge amount of pressure is being brought to bear on the US. Is there any evidence that it is having an effect? How long can Israel depend on US support? I think it, the way it goes now for quite a while, the Republicans, and again, 
uh, you know, anyone that listened here to Lindsey Graham <laughs> saying, but basically, in his view, the Republicans, it's going to be open-ended, way beyond weeks. You, you listen to what the, the Biden administration said, it's probably a matter of week or two. But again, week of two might be a short time, but not when you're under bombardment in, in, in Gaza, not when you have to face it uh, there, there in Gaza. It's a very long time. So I think in the coming days, maybe before, before Christmas, if you like to see kind of a marker when the United States will say also enough, enough, but that's a kind of the, the, the time scale. Some talk about the, day and the, the end of the year. But those are very long for, for the people of Gaza. This is a very, very long, way too long. But also, I mean, even if the UN agrees and, and the US is on board, is there any way of making sure that Israel complies with this? Well, this will be mainly in discussion between the United States and Israel. But I think it's worth reminding that while the General Assembly decision not binding the case of, of the Security Council, so if Israel would decide then to violate Security Council uh, resolution, that's we are in a different uh, territory altogether. <clears throat> I think this will be very difficult for Israel to say, because then it will lose also the support of the United States. Again, it's worth mentioning that you know just the, the, the Biden administration decided to 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 supply Israel with extra ten billion dollars in 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 military aid, including of ammunition that are needed for to continue this war. So I can see uh, that that Israel will defy a UN security resolution that is supported by the United States. And what about Hamas? There's no guarantee that they will stop the fight. I mean, indeed, they've said they won't. Well, again, if they want to buy, then I think they need desperately a ceasefire. Let's not forget there are still more than 100 uh, hostages in the end of Hamas, and which is actually... Uh, the Prime Minister of Qatar said here yesterday that the window of, of opportunity to save them is closing as the fights in Han Yunis uh, continue. And we should not forget these uh, people in, in, in captivity that caught in this in this crossfire, so to speak. And uh, again, if Hamas won't uh, agree by ceasefire, won't abide by uh, UN resolution, Security Council resolution, then the fights would continue. I, I doubt if that's what they are interested because they are the one under military pressure. Mm. Uh, and Yossi, you're in Doha, you're in Qatar. Can you just give us the temperature of, of what, what feelings are in the region on this conflict right now? I think, again, with the exception of Lindsey Graham, I think the mood is, is very concerned. I think, in a way, it's subdued because the, the, the picture of what happened... In, in Gaza, so on one is a view because people want to see that that coming to an end and believe that through mediation, especially through Qatar, it can come come to an end. At the same time, there is many people here that are very angry, uh, seeing what uh, what happens in Gaza. Of course, we shouldn't forget also what happened uh, uh, on seventh of October, and and I think one of the things we see more and more is constructive discussion. Bef- bef- beyond the upset is what happens the day after. And I think there are more and more people understand need to look at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as a whole, whether it's, you know, the security, it's West Bank, it's Gaza, dealing with extremism, how it affects the region, how it affects the international community. And, And there is an understanding, growing understanding that 
the international community can't once again let this conflict uh, to fester. One of the arguments that I hear again, and I can completely see that, is there is no point to talk about money going to Gaza and reconstruction unless there is a comprehensive peace agreement, because what's the point in three, four years? There will be another round of violence and it will be destroyed again. So there will, it's, it, it's bound, there's bound to be more a big picture discussion that this can continue forever and this conflict should be and it's the responsibility obviously of the fighting force but also of the international community to address it once and for all. Yossi, thank you very much indeed. That is Yossi Meckelberg in Qatar there. It is 9.13 in Cairo, 7.13 here in London. In Egypt, citizens are casting their votes in the presidential election, which will end on Tuesday. The results aren't expected until December the 18th, but given that the incumbent, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, won by 96% in both the 2014 and 2018 elections, he is likely to serve a third term. Well, joining me now from Istanbul is Ruth Michelson, who's a journalist who was formerly based in Egypt and she's been following developments closely. Ruth, uh, good to speak to you again. There are actually four candidates in this race. Who are the others? Um, I mean, I think we should probably start by saying that the the idea of voting and looking at the different candidates, there's a, a certain sense that there's a formality. Um, two of the candidates, two of the other candidates, other than Sisi, um, Hazm Omar and Abdul Sanad Yamama, those are both candidates that are viewed as extremely supportive of Sisi's presidency. Uh, the third candidate, uh, Farid Zahran, a little bit different. He um, has a fairly long political career as a kind of um, left-wing or uh, opposition figure, but he's also considered somebody that is somewhat uh, supportive, broadly supportive in the long term of Sisi's presidency. And so what we're seeing is that people uh, there, there has been some move to have um, long-time opposition figures vote for him and declare openly that they're voting for Farid Zahran. Um, and it really sort of appears to be more of, you know, people using the opportunity to run against CC to raise their political profile and to position themselves as people who in the coming uh, presidential term, which again is overwhelmingly expected to be uh, CC's next presidential term, that, uh, you know, that these are uh, these uh, alleged opposition candidates could then position themselves as people who are valuable gatekeepers um, in the coming six years. So Farid Zahran, for example, is the only one that has mentioned the tens of thousands of political prisoners that are behind bars um, in, uh, in Egypt at the moment. And he has positioned himself as someone who could be a potential negotiator if people are trying to get uh, their relatives or loved ones out of prison. Mm. So there are a couple of genuine opposition leaders who are in fact banned from standing there in prison. 
Well, exactly. And um, I mean, we also saw in a um, in something of a rerun of uh, the 2018 election that anybody that stood a real chance of presenting a different vision for running the country, um, offering something that really did look like more substantive opposition was prevented from running. Um, and so this time around, that was Ahmed Tantawi, who's a former MP um, and youth leader who created quite a groundswell of support. And um, he then said that he faced, he and his campaign faced intimidation that prevented him from getting on the ballot. And there was even a court case against him. And this is unfortunately a pretty familiar state of affairs um, that the uh, that the Egyptian leadership makes sure that when it actually comes down to the day of voting, that there's not it's not really a real choice that's on the ballot. Mm. Uh, we know Sisi's took over in a military coup in 2013. Since he's been in power, there's been a major crackdown on dissent. Egypt ranks 135th out of 140 countries on the World Justice Project's Rule of Law Index. I wonder how much of an appetite for change there really is within the, the citizenship of the country? I mean, I think that it's fair to say that people are suffering at the moment desperately from the, a profound economic crisis. And that is an economic crisis that, yes, there are some external factors um, in uh, that have generated this, but um, a lot of that is, is deeply rooted in the fact that Sisi has built a regime that has proved extremely lucrative for uh, himself and for the people around him. And at the same time is getting up and making speeches um, just in recent months, telling people that, you know, if they need to go hungry uh, for the price of development and progress in Egypt, then that is a price that they should be willing to pay, even though at the moment, um, inflation in Egypt is almost 40 percent. Um, food and beverage inflation is much, much, much higher than that. So people are struggling to eat and to feed themselves. There has been a devaluation of the currency. And by the state's own estimates, at least a third of the population are poor. So even just looking at people's day-to-day -day life and their economic reality, that has gotten considerably worse in the past decade. And then you combine that with the fact that um, speaking out about this in any way, organizing, being a member of a labor union, um, doing anything that is considered independent of the state's reach and of the state is essentially banned. Um, and so, you know, we're seeing that people are, people's lives have been made immeasurably worse um, by 10 years of CC, and they are also prevented from speaking out about it. So, mm. I mean, do, do we know how many people no longer want him empowered? No, but that is also the point of a democratic vote, that there would be an opportunity to find out. And he's made sure that that's not going to happen. I mean, in, in 2011, we saw those protests around Tahrir Square, which led to the overthrow of the then president, Hosni Mubarak. How likely is it that we could see a repeat of something like that? I know you've said that kind of political activity is banned, but is there a chance that Egyptians might just rise up? I mean, this is the permanent question. Um, and I think that fundamentally, there's a certain amount of unpredictability to this. One thing that I would say is that, um, and this is extremely appropriate given what's currently happening in Gaza and the sense of public outrage that people in Egypt feel about what's happening in Gaza and the fact that they are prevented from um, attending anything but uh, one day of state-sanctioned protest at the regime 
quickly uh, prevented from a repeat of that happening. Um, but th that kind of uh, action, those kinds of uh, people's ability to join unions, to join um, groups within civil society, and to at least have some kind of private political expression, even if it's not out in the street, um, those were some of the things that that allowed people to build movements and to build community and to build uh, momentum towards what happened in 2011. And so what we've seen in the past decade, or well, particularly since 2013, when CC came to power in a military coup, is that the state has gone after those forms of organizing to make sure that the root of that kind of uprising um, would is basically stopped before it started. Um, and so even though people's lives have gotten a lot worse, that there's more reason than ever to protest, the ability to organize, to get together with other people, even to say on the internet that you want something to happen or to express yourself by making it, even as a private citizen saying, I'm not happy with the situation um, or to make a comment on the economy, anything, you know, any public expression these things is you people are uh this is it's not just that it's banned it's that people are afraid to do it because it means you know potentially the security services knocking on your door first thing in the morning and so that kind of massive state outreach towards repression means that it has disabled a lot of that movement before it could even get off the ground ruth thank you very much indeed that's ruth michelston there now still to come on the program we are taking this threat very seriously. Venezuela is displaying, I think at this stage, the zenith of a pattern of aggressive behaviour towards Guyana. We'll have the latest on the escalating border crisis between Venezuela and Guyana. This is The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. On 23 minutes past seven here in London, let's continue with today's newspapers. Joining me in the, in the studio is Nina Dos Santos, who's an international broadcast correspondent and the former CNN Europe editor. Good morning to you, Nina. Good morning, Georgina. Uh, so how many prime ministers before Christmas? <laughs> oh, exactly. <laughs> with a partridge in a pear tree, perhaps. We've only got a few, a few um, weeks left, don't we? And, um, and then, of course, there's quite a few, uh, few weeks when obviously politicians won't be sitting through, throughout that period. And that'll probably be a bit of a relief to Rishi Sunak if he can get through the next week or so, because we've got this really important bill um, on his famous Rwanda policy. This is the idea of sending people who've arrived in the UK um, seeking asylum illegally to Rwanda for their cases to be um, 
you know, processed in the meantime before the UK uh, decides whether or not they have a claim uh, and can come back to these shores ostensibly. This Rwanda policy, which is a bedrock of um, the Conservative Party, ruling Conservative Party, but also very divisive as well, not just among the electorate, but also among members of this party, has gone back and forth uh, in terms of its legality in the Supreme Court. You remember that was rejected a few weeks ago, deemed illegal, and then the government said that they're managing to get more reassurances from Rwanda. There was a big deal just a week or so ago where James Cleverly, um, the new Home Secretary, made his way over to Kigali and offered another hundred or so million pounds to the government of Rwanda to make sure that he'd get these reassurances. But that's not enough for many critics on the right of the Conservative Party who say that, um, you know, the new framework surrounding this Rwanda immigration uh, legislation is not tough enough and it can mean that some people uh, will be able to dispute their claims. And then, of course, there's members who are more centrist in the Conservative Party who are aggrieved by it as well. So there's a big test here for Rishi Sunak in the House of Commons and he could be facing something of a Tory rebellion. If that's the case, the question is, will the Conservative Party unseat him between Mm. now and January next year when there has to be an election? Absolutely. Uh, Now, one of the things that he has done is he said that Rwanda is a safe country and nobody, including the courts, can say it's not. It is a safe country because we've said that it is a safe country. And anybody who's read Michaela Rong's incredible book, Do Not Disturb, will know that that is absolutely not the truth. And I would urge listeners to have 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 a read of that because if you really want to know what's going on in Rwanda... It's certainly not the way that the government is portraying it. Um, As you say, he may well face uh, um, being ousted by the party. And if that's the case, we are probably looking at a challenge from someone like, if not exactly, Suella Braverman. That's right. So this is his uh, former Home Secretary who, in in an impeccably timed missive, resigned with one of the most um, venal resignation letters that we've seen any cabinet um, minister offer a prime minister that I can remember in the last sort of 15, 20 years or so. And that has... um, put her in a position to try and coalesce rebels on the right side of the Conservative Party who want a harder stance on immigration. They want this legislation, when it comes to Rwanda, to reflect um, other libertarian views that they have, which would include pulling out of the Human European uh, Convention on Human Rights, for instance. And now that, Rishi Sunak knows, would aggravate more centrists on his party, but also could aggravate his relationship with the United States, because the US President Joe Biden has uh, made it very clear that the US would view that as quite aggressive because things like that um, human rights convention underpin all sorts of other pieces of legislation that are important over the last few years, including the Good Friday Agreement that's brought peace and stability to Northern Ireland. Um, So there is this fracture between the two sides of the party. And yes, there's talk over the weekend of whether or not Suella Braverman could, uh, you know, not just fight for the future of the Conservative Party if it's in opposition after the next election, judging by where the polls are going, Georgina, but whether or not she might try and unseat him uh, between now and Christmas. And if that is the case, we could be looking at a sixth potential Conservative (laughs) Prime Minister over the last decade and a bit, Um, Three, the last three of whom would technically have been unelected. Um, So that would be really difficult for the electorate and members of the party to swallow, I suspect. Let's go to Washington now because Vladimir Zelensky uh, is meeting Joe Biden and this is in a bid to free Ukrainian aid. It's a real problem here, this huge hold-up in Congress. Uh, But of course, it's having a a big impact on the ground uh, in in the conflict in Ukraine. That's right. Now, obviously, um, into its uh, second 
London heading to its third year, another winter bogged down with that much fated Ukrainian counteroffensive that began sort of in earnest in, in the late spring um, of this year seemingly failing. Um, and the real fear for Kyiv is that the United States has given Ukraine enough weapons to defend themselves against Russia and have this sort of battle of attrition, but not enough to actually win this war and regain territory. Um, the United States has already coughed up about $111 billion worth of aid. There's another $100 billion, uh, that has been pledged, but is stuck in, you know, the wrangling, partisan wrangling in Congress. And it's for this reason that Zelensky is heading over to Washington DC to meet with the Biden administration to try and signal this show of support that Washington has Kyiv's back. But the question is whether or not monetarily um, that type of money will come to the fore before obviously Congress breaks up and goes on on its holidays. Um, And you know, the US, of course, is entering a US election cycle, which means that domestic issues are coming to the fore too. And that's why we're seeing that, you know, this Ukraine bill being held up, Ukraine aid being held up, not just by other distractions like, uh, you know, the, the Israel's offensive on Hamas in Gaza, but also border issues between Mexico and the United States. Um, members of the further right of the Republican Party are desperately trying to bring this up as an issue, saying, well, look, we should be more focused on this rather than helping another far-flung part of the world that we've already given $100 billion to. Mm. There's a lot at stake for Zelensky, who'll be addressing Congress and the Senate as well tomorrow and Tuesday. Let's whiz over to Spain and also Gibraltar. Uh, Now, what's the Times reporting on this? Well, this is... A part of the ongoing dispute that's going on between Spain and the UK. Um, Gibraltar always pops up sort of at this time of year when, you know, uh, trade discussions, in this case, it's it's, it's border control issues that Spain uh, and the UK are trying to sort of settle on the issue of Gibraltar. Because remember that Gibraltar is a tiny little enclave, about 30,000 people, but 15,000 people need to go back and forth across the Spanish border, um, you know, to to work in Gibraltar. And the problem is, is that there's an airport in the middle with, <laughs> with a runway. And Spain is saying that if... Uh, after a few temporary uh, blips where they've had spot checks on people that's caused uh, long delays in passport control. Um, Spain is saying, well, look, any future deal to try and sort of smooth the passage of people back and forth along this border would mean that essentially the UK would have to give up sovereignty of the airport of Gibraltar. No way yet again, says both the government of Gibraltar and the UK, because they know full well, don't they, Georgina, that uh, if you give up sovereignty of that tiny little airstrip, well, essentially um, that could pave the way to Gibraltar going back to Spain now Um, that the UK has brexited. Uh, Finally, let's have a look at gifts. Christmas gifts. And this is a, um, a, a, a funny piece from the Times. Yeah, that's right. Saucy socks, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> uh, sweary socks. And um, Willy Wonka velvet, uh, you know, uh, suits, I suppose, are the things that one should be wearing. I've got to say, I did see some beautiful examples of the Wonka velvet suit at the Monocle Christmas party over the last few days. Uh, full marks to all of the people who turned up in those. Um, they look great. But yeah, sweary socks, apparently, are the latest thing to, um, to, to, to give one's spouse. I'll be getting a few for my husband, especially if he uh, continues to refuse to wash his, Georgina. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And when we're talking about sweary socks, how are they sweary? punky pins. I'm not sure whether I'm allowed to say any of these things before the, the watershed. Um, you know, mother F with asterisk, 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 
E-R. Um, I think I think the idea is is that you're supposed to wear normal socks, and then when you sit down, everybody gets a little bit of a shock, and then you're sort of, you know playing a game of chicken with somebody to see whether they look down and have actually realised that you're wearing something rather deliciously subversive on your feet. Fantastic. Uh, Nina, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Now, here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. In Argentina, the libertarian economist Javier Millet took office yesterday, warning in his maiden speech that he had no alternative to a sharp, painful fiscal shock to fix the country's worst economic crisis in decades, with inflation heading towards 200%. His shock therapy economic plan of sharp spending cuts has gone down well with investors and could stabilise the embattled economy, but it risks pushing more people into hardship, with over two-fifths already in poverty. An African regional body helping to mediate the war in Sudan says it's secured a commitment from warring parties to implement a ceasefire and to hold a political dialogue aimed at resolving the conflict. However, there was no immediate comment from Sudan's army or the paramilitary rapid support forces, which had been locked in violent conflict since April. And former European Council President Donald Tusk is expected to be appointed Prime Minister of Poland today, during a Parliament sitting set to captivate the nation. Poland, a European Union and NATO member, has seen an unprecedented level of interest in the workings of the legislature since the October the 15th election gave a majority to a broad alliance of pro-European Union parties headed by Tusk. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. On Friday, the political funding scandal in Japan widened as the chief cabinet secretary, Hirokazu Matsunu, was accused of receiving 10 million yen in kickbacks. This is just the latest instalment of a drama which may be threatening Prime Minister Fumio Kishida's hold on power. Well, today he pledged to take steps to restore trust in his government amid reports he's planning to purge cabinet ministers. Fiona Wilson is Monocle's Asia editor and Tokyo bureau chief. She joins me now very bravely dragged from your sickbed. I understand, Fiona. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, I do have a slight cough. I will, I will try to suppress it. <laughs> um, this financial scandal is pretty complicated. Can you can you explain the the backstory? Yeah, I mean, you pretty much need a sort of PhD in Japanese politics to get this one. But I mean, the headlines are the LDP, Liberal Democratic Party, the ruling party. This is Fumio Kishida, his party. Is it's it's really it's, it's divided into six factions at the moment and. There's been this accusation that the factions are underreporting the money they've been raising um, from polit- these political fundraisers. And it specifically, it's come down to one particular faction, although other factions are in the frame. There's one particular faction, which is the Abe faction, which was named after the late Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, which means that it affects several members of Kishida's cabinet. Now, Kishida is in a very weak position at the moment. His polling is absolutely terrible. And he really needs uh, the Abe faction members to prop up his government. So he's in a difficult position. And, uh, you know, we're talking about four cabinet ministers who are in the frame here, and one of whom is the chief cabinet secretary you just mentioned, Mr. Matsuno. And it looks like he will have to go. And the question is, has Kishida uh, really got the guts to get rid of the others? Because if he does, it puts his own government um, in a very, very weak position. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, he's going to have to make some kind of uh, movement today. What, I mean, what will happen to the people accused of, of taking these kickbacks? 
Well, actually, so it's not illegal to take the kickbacks. What's illegal is that they didn't report them or allegedly didn't report them. This is what's being investigated. So, you know, at the moment, at the moment no one's been actually convicted of anything. But this is the um, this is the charge. This is the allegation. And Kishida came out today. He's obviously taking a lot of heat today in the diet. And he came out today and said he will take appropriate measures at appropriate times in personnel matters, which people took to mean these are the ones he'll be uh, booting out of the cabinet. And, you know, we're also talking about there are there are other there are vice state ministers, state ministers. You know, you, you're talking about 15 quite senior officials and you've got senior officials within the LDP itself. So there are some big names here. And what's happening is the diet session finishes on Wednesday. And I think a lot of people feel that after that ends, he will have to make a move. He's going to have to say, you know, whoever is leaving is leaving. The question is, who does he bring in? This scandal could widen. Um, you know, at the moment, you know, several names have come out. But like all these scandals that seem to happen, it starts one way, it ends up getting much, much bigger. So it's does, the question is, does Kishida really have a handle on it all? Mm. I mean, his ratings are terrible, as you say. Uh, can he convince the public he can he can get through this? Yeah, I mean, so his ratings are about 30%. Depends which poll you look at under they're really very low uh you know it's not looking good for him anyway and the opposition i have to say the opposition never really uh unifies properly in japan now i think in many places this would be this scandal would be a killer blow for this this government but the opposition is slightly hesitant they're now saying there's going to be a vote of no confidence in matsuno the chief cabinet secretary not in kishida's government you know some people felt they maybe should have done that um but the, the opposition is not really i don't think quite going to finish the government off yet but it may be that the public you know when they go through these polls the public isn't happy with this and other things they're not thrilled about the economy they weren't that impressed with the previous reshuffle that happened earlier in the autumn they didn't particularly love the big economic stimulus uh, package that Kishida put forward. So there are various other issues. And this scandal is really not welcome for Kishida at the moment. And the problem is it's just taking over um, all the papers, the headlines, anything good he's trying to do, COP28, whatever that is, none of that matters. This is the scandal that, that's leading the uh, headlines. And is there much talk about what a new cabinet would look like? Well, I mean, there is, because it's the question is, who are you going to bring in, really? Um, and I think looking ahead, the big question for, for Prime Minister Kishida is he has a leadership election next autumn. That's what he'll be looking to. You know, the leader of the LDP is the prime minister. And he's got that to think about. Can he convince the public? And the other question is general election. There was a lot of talk about whether there'd be a snap election at the end of this year. Obviously, that won't happen. It's a terrible time for Kishida. But the question is, can he get an election in before this leadership election? Can he kind of retain control? I think at the moment it's looking very, very uh, shaky for Kishida. And in some ways we were slightly, you know, there's a bit of a sense that Shinzo Abe was prime minister, prime minister for so long. I think people forgot that generally the rule in Japanese politics was that it was a revolving door and people came in and out, really. And I think Kishida, you know, since 2021, he, he's, you know, he's been quite good. He's, he's a very experienced foreign minister. He's been traveling a lot. He's had the occasional kind of boost in his popularity. But if you look at the overall trajectory, not looking great for him. Fiona, thank you. That was Monocle's Asia editor, Fiona Wilson, speaking to us from Tokyo. You're with Monocle Radio.
It's 8.39 in Zurich. That is 3.39am in Georgetown. The United States had said it will conduct joint flight drills with Guyana amid growing tensions between Guyana and Venezuela. Last week, Venezuelan President Nicolás Maduro instructed state-owned firms to begin exploiting oil and gas in Essequibo, a region of Guyana which Caracas claims as its own. Well, earlier, Monocle's Andrew Muller spoke to Donetsk Street, an international maritime law consultant and senior foreign service officer at Guyana's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Andrew began by asking Donet how seriously Guyana is taking this threat from Venezuela. We are taking this threat very seriously. Venezuela is displaying, I think at this stage, the zenith of a pattern of aggressive behavior towards Guyana over the last five decades or so. Ever since we've had the situation when Venezuela claimed in 1962, Venezuela then first formally claimed that the award that defined the boundary between Ghana and Venezuela was invalid. And since then, despite the fact that legal and peaceful options have been provided for Venezuela to prove this claim of nullity, we've had over the years a series of really aggressive statements emanating from the government, actions and taken by the Venezuelan army. It's the pattern really. As you correctly point out, this dispute goes back away, but this is an extremely, obviously significant escalation by Venezuela. Is Guyana anticipating that in a worst-case scenario, other South American countries will come to its assistance? Well, we do have pledges of support from South American countries, including Brazil, of course, and they have indicated that the region is to remain a zone of peace. And, you know, they have generally denounced this aggressive posture of President Maduro. And so they have also pledged their support to Guyana. We would hope that this matter does not escalate into a physical confrontation. We would hope that good sense would prevail and the government of Venezuela would not take any military actions in furtherance of its illegal claim. But of course, we remain prepared and we have sought on all sides, both diplomatically, militarily, legally, to ensure that we have the support that we need. And we have, and I must say, yes, in addition to South American countries, we have the support. Ghana did communicate to the UN Secretary General and the Secretary General on December 1, once the court had made that order, we provided that information to the Secretary General. The Secretary General actually did share that information with the UN Security Council. So we're taking all necessary measures, but we would hope that this matter would not escalate into an actual confrontation. On that subject, uh, how difficult is finding the balance between preparing Guyana for the worst and not, I guess, creating a situation in which you end up inadvertently contributing towards momentum that might make it worse? I know President Irfan Ali has put Guyana's armed forces on high alert, which seems like a reasonable precaution. There will also be, as I understand it, a stepping up in engagement from the United States in terms of uh, air 
aerial exercises and so on. Where is the balance between being prepared and attempting to try and keep things as calm as possible? So that difficult balance, I think that is where the government of Ghana has engaged the assistance of the international community. That it is a very difficult balance to strike. And so we have reached out, and you probably are aware that the president of Brazil had sent a team to Caracas to speak to, to President Maduro, to meet with the government of Venezuela. So that kind of discussion is happening. Ghana has engaged the international community, members of the international community, to have that kind of discussion to create that very delicate balance that is needed. So we are assured that there are governments that are communicating with Caracas because it is our intention, of course, that we have not genuinely propagated military confrontation as a means of of settling matters. There is a need for for dialogue, but of course, we've used other countries as, as a mediator, and that's what President Ali has been doing. And that was Donette Street speaking to Monocle's Andrew Muller. This is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. It's time now to talk art news with the journalist Amma Rose Abrams, who joins us in the studio. Many thanks for coming in, Amma Rose. It's really lovely to have somebody opposite me. Uh, now, we are talking about Art Basel Miami Beach, and it's just closed with some really big sales. Some really big sales. I mean, this is the kind of the last big event on the art world calendar happening right at the end of the year and everybody gets to go to Miami and enjoy some of the sunshine. But there was that tension. Will the market hold up? It's been a rocky year, maybe for many obvious geopolitical and um, post-pandemic reasons, but the anxiety is still there. Yet, um, there was a sale of a Marlena Dumas, I think one of the biggest sales of her career, and that was sold for $9 million by the gallery David Zwerner. And um, there was a big, big deal about that. And then um, Hauser & Worth sold a Philip Guston piece for $20 million. So the huge sales were there. And... Um, Mainly what people go to for at Miami Beach is the parties. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I want to turn to this story, which has actually been rumbling on for years. And actually at the heart of it, the kind of sexy part of it, is is the Salvatore Mundi, which is this extraordinary painting that's been attributed to Leonardo da Vinci. It's one of four works sold privately by Sotheby's that are subject to a fraud-related claim still pending in New York. And this is this long-running battle, legal battle, between um, a Swiss financier and, and a Russian oligarch. Absolutely. This is Dmitry Ribolovlev and Yves Bouvier, who've been fighting it out for years because Yves Bouvier dealt, um, I think, 38 works of art belonging to uh, 
uh, Ribolovlev, and he basically made such a huge profit, almost a £1.2 billion profit on the paintings. And um, this didn't go down well um, with him. I mean, he does. he's not short of money. He owns Monaco Football Club. But basically, one of the paintings that he made a huge markup on was the, was, I think it's £480 million sale of Salvatore Mundi, which I think it just, it, he's never going to let that go. And um, But he's been forced, I think, he'd be hard-pressed to pursue um, Bouvier any further and he's not the only person who's had an issue with uh, Bouvier's activities. But would be hard-pressed to pursue him any further because a court in Geneva has said there is no case to answer in terms of his kind of... Um, him saying that he uh, lied about the original valuation of these paintings. So uh, Bouvier is thrilled. He feels like he's been completely exonerated. But I think just he will have trouble shaking the uh, reputation he's gained through this very controversial, almost decade-long battle. Mm. And what do we know about the Salvatore Mundi now? I mean, do we know where it is? I, last I heard, it was on a boat. Um, uh, uh, it was on uh, um, Mohammed bin, bin Salman's boat. But I don't know where the boat is and um, no one's seen it on the boat, but apparently this is where it is. It was meant to go to the Louvre, Abu Dhabi, but it's never been seen since its sale. Mm. And I believe there is a, a now an N- NFT version of it. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> of course there is. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's have a look at Old Masters London sales. Uh, those have done surprisingly well. Yes, it's more kind of slightly, you know, conservatively good news for the art market because I think they had an estimate of 60 million for the complete for the combined sales of the week, Sotheby's and Christie's, and it brought in 80 million. So it exceeded expectation in a way that I think is going to reassure everyone as the year closes. Uh, but there was a kind of adoration of the Maggie, a recently recognised Rembrandt that sold um, for, I think that was for 13 million. And um, so that really bumped up the prices. $13 million, £11 million. So that really bumped up the prices. And then um, basically, between I think Christie's made a total of £34.2 million and Sotheby's made £29.2 million. So it really, it was a good sale, good week, sorry, of sales mm. for both I, um, houses. I mean, I suppose the worry must be that but when you strip out all the kind of Russian oligarchs who are under sanction, that, that you're losing some of your, your biggest buyers. Exactly. And, um, I, but I guess that means that maybe other people can come forward and it opens out the market for us, you know, others. So rather than just reaching for the kind of like the collectors that you might automatically go for that you can really rely on, you people just work a bit harder and can talk to other other kind of collectors around the world because, I mean, they're not the only people buying art. Mm. Who is buying art? Well, that's a big, that's always a big question, isn't it? Yeah. But I think uh, it seems to be a lot of other collectors. I mean, I think there was Johnny Van Heften. He um, made a big purchase at a London dealer uh, this uh, over the last week. And um, Cliff Scherer was another one who uh, bought one of the pieces last week. And I think it's just these, it seems to be... Uh, I wonder, what, would you, what would you call it? It seems to be inter- dealers, other dealers that are doing a lot of the buying or were doing that during Old Masters Week. Mm. And um, institutions, I guess, buy a lot of artwork as well. But then, of course, there's all the other kind of um, more clandestine, anonymous buyers and um, 
a kind of private sales that go on. And I think, to be honest, we don't really know who buys a lot of the art. Mm. Finally, let's have a look at the Uffizi because the person that's been in charge there, a German, has decided he's moving on. Uh, but during his tenure there, his eight-year tenure, which ends this month, um, he's overseen sweeping changes. Uh, and one of the things he's done is that he's introduced dynamic pricing. So entry could cost more than half in, in uh, uh, when, you're, when you're full on in season. Uh, but, you know, if you go early in the morning, it's cheaper and so on. And this has been a big issue for galleries, overcrowding, still getting the people in, but making it a pleasant experience. Absolutely, because people come to the Uffizi and it's a once in a lifetime experience. It is one of the world's leading museums. But I think it's really smart what he's done. I mean, he's if you go and you travel all the way to Italy to see these wonderful paintings and sculptures, you don't want to be standing behind, you know, a very tall person and just kind of craning around, kind of trying to see everything. So it's really important to keep that kind of... Um, to stagger the space a little bit and I think it's a really clever way of doing it saying if you turn up at the beginning you pay slightly less and that's a big incentive for a lot of tourists Mm. also that it's um I think you can, it can feel slightly like you can you're being milked when you go to these huge destinations and you're kind of just paying and seeing a tiny bit and rushing around whereas that kind of consideration even if it is still really crowded I think goes a long way for kind of like feeling like you're having a good experience and you're cared for as a visitor. Mm. And I mean, one thing he did, for instance, is he's he's increased, um, he's tripled the number of visitors aged 19 to 25. He did this by bringing in an influencer and showing her around, which worked magnificently. And I mean, I think that that it just is about a different way of selling yourself these days. Absolutely. And when you think that when he came to the Uffizian uh, eight years ago, they didn't even have a website. Quite, quite extraordinary. Uh, he hasn't ruled out returning to the gallery in the future, which I think is, is, is quite interesting. I'm not sure where he's going now, but certainly, of course, you fit see one of the most extraordinary places to visit. Yeah. Emma Rose, thanks very much Thank indeed. Thank you. One of the most highly anticipated events in Monocle's calendar took place last weekend. The Monocle's London Christmas Market was in full swing uh, over the weekend, featuring plenty of excellent food, drink and festive treats. Monocle's Emma Nelson brings the best of the market to Monocle Radio in this report. The atmosphere is building a little. The rain is doing its best, but it's not doing well enough to beat the Christmas spirit, is it? Tom Edwards, Head of Radio, how are you? Emma Nelson, what what a joy. Yeah, exactly. The area is coursing with the spirit (laughs) of Christmas and nothing, even this persistent drizzle, will dampen certainly my enthusiasm. What persistent drizzle, Tom? Exactly. We're spreading a little sunshine on air, as you always do or so often do on the weekends, Emma. But it's what a jolly scene. It's Um, lovely. We got Santa, we got the reindeer. Did you hear an authentic reindeer jingle bells? And Uh, wonderful stuff. Our editor-in-chief has just walked in with Macy the dog. What are you looking forward to today at the market? Well, I promised yesterday to try and buy a few gifts, which I've, I've been terrible at doing this year. So I'm going to try and scoot around and pick up a few things. Mm-hmm. The, the, we had the team here from Zurich and the team here from Murano staffing the Monocle shop. 
and they're doing a super good job. I have uh, two friends, Kay and her husband Frank, who are here doing a, a jewelry store with really beautiful silverware jewelry, and I don't know, it's just nice seeing them meeting former clients coming back here. There's just a good atmosphere about people who have become into the fold of Monocle. I'm joined by one of the regular faces here at the Monocle Christmas Market, holding a stall for I don't know how many years now, April from La Fetiche. La Fetiche, yes. We've been here a number of years now. It's just such a wonderful event to be part of. It really is such a joyous, joyous thing. And what is it that you sell? We sell sweaters, which we are showing today. Great big piles of them, rainbow colour sweaters, handmade coats that have been lovingly made for years. So that's that's really our mission is to find makers that have a fantastic skill set and to turn them around and make them our own kind of aesthetic. Where do you get your wool from? The wool is yeah. all Scottish, yeah. Oh yes, it's extremely important that we know exactly where it's come from, the breed of sheep that it's come from, where it's been spun. Yeah, it's all extremely important for me where the garment is made and where the yarn has come from. Santa Claus, a very warm welcome to Monocle Radio. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. And what are children writing to you about this year? It's surprising that some people think that when they have a chance to talk to Santa Claus and make their wishes, they would say, I want five PlayStations and I want a dozen of games. The truth is that children always, nearly always, with you know, extra time with the families, good food... And of course, the, uh, you know, a holiday from school. Those, you know, simple things. For the final time today from the Monocle Christmas Market, I'm delighted to say I'm bringing together two people who, whose jobs are ordinarily probably very different, but I think we're going to have quite an interesting conversation. James, you're the reindeer man. Hi, Emma. Hello. I am indeed. <laughs> and Louis, you make dog treats. Indeed, I do. So your company calls it Yoko. Yoko, yes. Our treats are all dehydrated with organic ingredients and we don't have any additives. Yeah. All flavours will be carrot. Fish skins and there's other sort of vegetables as well. Vegetables, it? yes. Carrot and turmeric, which is good for digestion. We also have kale and seaweed with fish oil, which is good for the joints. Listening to that is James, who's having to do feed on a slightly larger scale. Yeah, paving slab sizes of lichen moss every day. That's not per reindeer, so that would be shared out amongst all of them. And how many um, have you got? We've got nine. Prancer and Dasher. Yes. We've got Dancer and Blitzen. Of course. We have Donna, Vixen. Yes. Ru- Rudolph, of course. Seriously. And then, of course. wait for it, Steve. Yeah. How is Steve? Steve is great. He's two years old and he's just started working Christmases this year. Right. So he is um, out today somewhere. And between you and me, do you actually ever put Steve in as Donna or no. Rudolph when, when Donna and Rudolph are otherwise engaged? No, absolutely. Steve, Steve. Steve is Steve. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. The rain has cleared, our final hit from the Monocle Christmas market. We hope you've enjoyed it. We're going back indoors in a moment. Uh, Well, let's hear from Hideki Kaji and White Christmas. (laughs) 
Many thanks there to Emma Nelson. And that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Christy O'Grady, Emma Searle and Carlotta Rabello, our researcher, Neoma Ekwe, and our studio manager, Mariella Bevan. After the headlines, there's more music on the way and the briefing is live at midday in London. The Globalist will return at the same time tomorrow. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>